Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watch Victor Victoria. A struggling female soprano finds work playing a male female impersonator, but it complicates her personal life. Ooh. A woman pretending to be a man pretending to be a woman. Yeah. Oh, what a glorious musical this is. It's very good. I was waiting for it to be overly cringeworthy, and it's not. It's a little cringy, but it's because it's 1982. Sure. And there are just things that today we would hopefully just not say. Some things we wouldn't say, but I also don't hate, I don't hate a lot of the framing of this. There's some interesting quotes within the trivia, but like the only thing that you're left wanting from this movie in 2021 Mm -hmm. is y'all could have taken this even further sure and i understand why it wasn't done at that time today it would be really interesting to see what this story could look like and also looking at like the timeline because i went where does this fall in the aids crisis Mm -hmm. and the first known aids patients like it became a real thing in the u.s in 1981 Mm -hmm. so we're just hitting the height of public awareness like the Mm -hmm. next year 83 i believe is when it really really blew up sure and was like everywhere but even then there was still this this stuff going on for a movie to be this brazenly questioning about gender Mm -hmm. and sexuality and to have a prominent gay character who is very outwardly and outspokenly gay mm-hmm. is a big fucking deal in 1982. <laughs> oh, sure. Like, I, I certainly don't want to minimize that at all. It's just one of those things. It's like, wow, this is a lot for this time. So I'd be interested to see what this story would look like today. Yet again, we've got another movie where it's like, oh, y'all should remake this. And, and and not because this one's bad, but it would just be so interesting to have this type of, because these dynamics are still 100% at play, but with our more evolved thinking and conversations about gender and identity, what does this look like? You could take it even further. Sure. And that's what I think would be interesting in an updated version. Yep. There was a musical version made of it later in 1995. Julie Andrews also stars in that, and there is a filmed version of that. Oh, okay. That's very cool. It does exist, but um, it's interesting. This is, this is one of those rare cases where it was a movie before it was anything else. Yeah, that is interesting, but it's such a musical movie, so that's why it's included here. I mean, it's very much a musical. Yeah, oh, sure. Show-stopping numbers. Ridiculous moments, hijinks aplenty. Mm. It's a little bit of a farce, but that makes sense by who made it. Sure. So the budget for this film was $15 million. Really? It's a lot of money. It was never intended to cost that much money. It was intended to be a much smaller production. Mm -hmm. But they filmed almost exclusively at Pinewood Studios. Okay. So building the sets just mushroomed the budget of this film okay the most notable extravagance in the sets that we see are the nightclub the luxury hotel rooms the exteriors of the paris streets Mm -hmm. and the agent's offices all sets in london on pinewood okay so they kind of went way hog wild with it yeah that that makes sense i i see that I see it, but in a movie in 1982, that's very, it's very gay. It's a very gay movie. Oh, yes, it is very, very gay. And for you to wind up spending that much money on it, Mm -hmm. ooh, that's asking a lot (laughs) from a studio. True. Good news is it grossed $28,215,000, made about double its money back. It did well enough. Well enough. Yeah. Something I've learned in reading some of these numbers and things is like mm-hmm. just because the the gross adds up to like double or triple more, a lot of studios will call that a failure because of certain debt obligations and things that don't get factored into the final budget. Mm-hmm. So this might be one of those that actually broke even, even though on paper it looks like it made a lot of money. But nevertheless, the people who did see it enjoyed it. And I mean, 
that makes sense. It got made into a full-on musical later down the road. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's talk about our writing. Okay. And this one is interesting, not because of who actually wrote the screenplay. That makes a lot of sense. What is interesting is where this comes from, because this is actually a remake. Oh, okay. The concept was created by a German gentleman named Hans Holmberg, but the actual script was written in 1933 by Reinhold Schunzel in his German film, Victor und Victoria. Oh, okay. That movie wound up being remade several different times. It was made into a movie called First a Girl in 1935 and another German version, Victor and Victoria, in 1957. Okay. The biggest difference is it was never a musical comedy. Okay. She's a performer. That's The whole plot stays the same, but I don't think it was ever a full-on structured musical musical. I mean, I can, I can see how that would be the case, sure. And, you know, harking back to our last movie, Cabaret, this is happening in Weimar, Berlin. Oh, yeah. So this kind of story, audiences would be hip enough to get this in 1933 in Germany. Mm -hmm. It starred Renata Mueller, one of the biggest stars of Jazz Age Berlin, alongside Marlena Dietrich. Dietrich just happened to you know, cross over to America. And uh, Schunzel himself was an actor and director of German films. He also had some notable performances in America, including the Hitchcock film Notorious. Oh, okay. So it is interesting. This comes from source material. It comes from this older movie that was in a specific place in time where you could pull this story off. Yeah. What's massively amazing is somehow our writer and director, Blake Edwards, figured out how to make it work in 1982, probably because he just didn't give a fuck. That helps. Because from all accounts, Blake Edwards was that kind of guy. Okay. Blake Edwards could be considered an auteur in some ways, an auteur of farce. He sort of created the sarcastic slash slapstick comedy that we see in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. He took that sort of slapstick feeling and also added layers of irony over it. <laughs> um, and when I tell you the, the things he made, you'll understand why. Before this, he wrote lots of TV comedy, including the series Peter Gunn. Then, The Pink Panther, A Shot in the Dark, The Great Race, Gun, The Party, Darling Lily, The Return of the Pink Panther, The Pink Panther Strikes Again, Revenge of the Pink Panther, Ten, and SOB. After this, Trail of the Pink Panther, Curse of the Pink Panther, The Man Who Loved Women, That's Life, Blind Date, Sunset, Skin Deep, and Son of the Pink Panther. Wow. There were seven of those movies. <laughs> seven? Pink Panther 1, Shot in the Dark 2, Return, Pink Panther Strikes Again, Revenge of the Pink Panther, Trail of the Pink Panther, Curse of the Pink Panther. There's eight because we have Son of the Pink Panther, though that one stars Roberto Benigni. We also then need to talk about our music because it's a musical. Our composer for this musical is a man that you have definitely heard the name of and you have definitely heard his music. It is Henry Mancini. Oh, yeah. He is a huge deal. Composed for 206 movies total. Wow. Was a member of the Glenn Miller Band after the war and worked alongside Benny Goodman's band for a long time. Okay. And you would know him. He wrote the Peter Gunn theme, the Pink Panther theme. We all know, of course. Mm -hmm. And Moon River. Oh, wow. Yeah. So here's his credits. This is just the highlights. Before this, Abbott and Costello go to Mars. It came from outer space. The Glenn Miller story. Creature from the Black Lagoon. Ape misbehaven. Touch of evil. The thing that couldn't die. Peter Gunn. Breakfast at Tiffany's. Atari. Days of Wine and Roses. Charade. The Pink Panther. A Shot in the Dark. Arabesque. Gun. Wait until dark. The Molly Maguire's Darling Lily. Sometimes a Great Notion. The Great Waldo Pepper. Silver Streak. 10. SOB. Mommy Dearest. After this... Santa Claus the movie, The Great Mouse Detective, The Glass Menagerie from 1987. He wrote music for all the Pink Panther movies, duh, obviously, but he also worked on almost all of Blake Edwards' movies besides that. He's a big fucking deal. Wow. The lyrics are from somebody we have also talked about on this show a few different times. That would be Leslie Bricuse, who wrote and composed Dr. Doolittle. Along with the musical Stop the World I Want to Get Off, Scrooge the Musical, and Jekyll and Hyde. Okay, well, we're not going to talk about 
Doolittle. At least the music wasn't terrible. No, it okay. I get, it. I, I get it. I mean, Rex Harrison sings to a seal, but you know. Well, well, we're we're not talking. We're not revisiting that. <laughs> it was painful. What do we think, first of all, about the screenplay? I think it's great. Aside from the 2021 lens, it's great. It's interesting. It flirts with being. Uh, it, it's just so cheeky. I mean, that's the hallmark of Blake Edwards, right? Mm-hmm. You see the Pink Panther, and it's always just like Clouseau is bumbling, and it starts off as just, you know, straight farce slapstick. Mm-hmm. But somewhere along the way, it verges into we're going to make some racy jokes here. Oh, yeah. And see how much we can get away with. And that was like Blake Edwards' MO through his entire career. Mm-hmm. How much can I actually get away with? Yeah, no, I get that. I was a little uncomfortable because I wanted, I was like, oh, are we getting into really gross, gross territory? And we didn't. I mean, we got, we got very close, <laughs> but the payoff felt worth it. I'm not a particular fan of the ending. Mm-hmm. And especially because I feel like it undercuts what Victoria tells King when they finally get together is like, I like this. I have so much freedom. Okay. What's the finish? A woman in love with a man pretending to be a man. I said you can stop pretending. But you see, I don't think I want to. I'm a big star now. I'm a success. Oh, that. And something more. I find it all really fascinating. I mean, there are things available to me as a man that I could never have as a woman. I'm emancipated. Emancipated? Well, I'm my own man, so to speak. You should be able to relate to that. Now, to be honest with you, right now I'm having a little trouble relating to anything. Edwards himself has actually admitted that he, quote, chickened out and added the scene where King discovers Victoria is a woman. Mm -hmm. In his original concept, he wanted King to fall in love with her without knowing. I appreciate that he admits that he chickened out of that. Like, I, I do appreciate that. Like, that's good self-awareness. Because, yeah, it's a little bit more compelling and shocking if he doesn't know. Um, and I, I think it's a lot more romantic. Him finding out that Victor is actually Victoria felt like it was the right amount of cheeky. I don't believe he intended to spy on her. And then it just kind of happened. Like, I like that we just see his reaction to it. I don't, I don't know. I feel like I wish we had gone to the place where he just fell in love with Victor, but I get it. <laughs> like, I just like there's like, I, yeah, I'm very conflicted with it because I don't think it's the worst thing, but I, I wish it was more. Yeah, it's not bad in any way. I think part of the issue, too. It's not just that sort of content feeling and looking at it going, oh, but you could have actually done this and regretting that. It also hampers like the characters. A little. Like it takes away enough of the agency of Victoria at the end of this story that it feels awkward because throughout this entire time, Victoria and Victor have just been incredibly strong-willed. And the further they go along with this ruse, the more strong-willed they get. Mm-hmm. And with this moment, you undercut that when you've just been building it the whole time through. You have to somehow instead reinforce that, even if she makes the decision, I'm done, I want to be with him. But you've got to somehow have that be her agency. I want to give them credit for the fact that his his goon, his his partner, I guess, goes, well, if you can be... As so open, then now I can be too. That at least we got that. I do agree that I wish after she had said, you know, I like this and I have so much more freedom living this way, he made a, a, some sort of declaration that made it clear that he was going to be fine with it. And he was just like, I want you. I don't care about the rest of this. So that like she doesn't have to give it up for him. But then if they still give it the ending with her choosing to, it's like, okay, he's proven himself. He's willing to give up something for you. And so that then it then it makes it more like 
okay. It bothering him that last time in the club also mm-hmm. really leaves it a not great taste in your mouth. Yeah, it's a little, it's, well, it's not a little, it's, it feels gross. After he's already declared, I can work through it. I can get past this with myself, then he can't. Yeah. And then to wrap it up that way, again, that's a fine thing. That's an interesting story choice, but then don't have them wind up together. Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of ways they could have taken it where they wouldn't undercut our main character's agency. Sure. And to me, it's it's not just a failure of like, we all had some regressive views. It's also just a failure of, that's just bad storytelling. <laughs> well, and we also have to acknowledge that we're obsessing over you know this cis woman story because her success is also at the expense of her gay best friend who's now taking a back seat so that she can be successful yes although he's taking as much advantage of her as she is of him well sure he's also benefiting from this but i don't know it's It's such a complicated story to be. There are so many layers. I think where you really then have to even give more credit is he was willing to get messy with it. Now, he made some choices that probably didn't help the overall story, Mm -hmm. but he didn't make this a clean, easy story. No. He was willing to make it messy. Yeah, it's definitely messy. And in that messiness, there's a lot to admire from it. and. It's why this became such a, you know, modern classic and has become one of those musicals that wasn't just successful on Broadway. It became a sort of repertory successful type show mm-hmm. because it's it's a farce and it's a comedy that everybody can get behind. But it's willing to talk about those issues in a pretty mm-hmm. frank way. Yeah. You get a lot of credit for that. You get a lot of points for doing that. Just you know, maybe tweak that script just a little bit. The songs. I mean, the songs are good. I wouldn't call them anything amazing. No, they're very showy. They're vehicles to show off Julie Andrews. Which we don't have a problem with. No, but it's not like I would, I would need to hear the full Broadway version to get a feel for how this would actually work in that conception. Sure. We got a lot of performance pieces, which is appropriate, but I would, this, because this isn't a typical musical, didn't get a lot of it. We didn't get any of those character songs. Yeah. Which would probably be in the musical musical, which is fine. It doesn't take away from this movie, but in a musical, that's what's missing. You do get like one. You get one song and it's Crazy World. Yes. Crazy World. Full of crazy contradictions like a child First you drive me wild And then you win my heart With your wicked art One minute tender But even then, it's still... Because it's still such a showpiece. That might not be the writing. That might be the directing. And it's very easy for us to go into directing because it's Blake Edwards directing this film. Mm-hmm. He really directed everything he wrote, along with he did direct Breakfast at Tiffany's. He did? Okay. Yes. I didn't know that. And he directed Days of Wine and Roses. Those are the two big ones, honestly. Hmm. Everything else, you know, it was eight Pink Panther movies and then 10 and SOB. So, like, he. He eventually just was like, I'm making all my own shit. I know it's dumb comedies, but it's what I'm really good at. Sure, or what I like to do. He also just so happened to be Mr. Julie Andrews. Yes, so uh, I knew this simply because as a child, one of my favorite books is Mandy, which is written by Julie Edwards, who is actually, in fact, Julie Andrews. She used her married name as her pen name. Smart. Yes. Yeah, so I figured that out. So I, was, I remember reading the back of it and being like, wait, what? And then like having to look that up. What do we think of the directing of this movie? I think uh, it's excellent, but I think it's so careful because 
will say this. While the story is ultimately about Victoria, Julie, it takes such care with making us understand that Toddy is also shown in a positive light. He is beloved. People love his performance. They don't care that he's gay. They love him. And I think that's really important. We, we talk about loving restraint, but it might be a little too restrained. Maybe, but I think that could also be with the subject matter, trying not to be disingenuous with it. There's a sheen, especially in the performance sequences, that ultimately belies some of the more dynamic things we've seen. Mm-hmm. Some of that makes a lot of sense. This is meant to evoke that feeling of a 1930s movie. Sure. In a lot of ways, it has some similar vibes to the dramatic sequences of 42nd Street. I would agree with that, yes. I, I kind of get those vibes. I almost wish that he had treated those dance numbers like mm-hmm. Busby Berkeley numbers, mm. gone like full bore, mm-hmm. and then binned that very flat, restrained stage farce style filming for the rest of the stuff Hmm. because on the on the one hand for all of the drama and all of the farce that goes on in this movie Mm -hmm. it's perfect because that's what he's amazing at yeah and his cast is so good at doing that the musical numbers don't have that oomph that we've gotten from a lot of movies true but this isn't a true musical yeah so we have to we have to be a little more measured with our criticism because in this movie, the music is supposed to be just a stage performance. Yeah, I just, I wonder if we could have played it up a little bit. Ah, uh, sure, sure. And I think having that delineation would help it. Sure. Because I think the flatness of it can make it drag a little bit. Again, these are small quibbles. I'm not like sure. I'm not being crazy. But I do think that there are moments where even when we get these musical numbers, the movie feels like it's just dragging a little bit until we get to the next Scooby-Doo type moment. Sure. But again, I think that is because this is not a true movie musical as opposed to some of the other things we've seen. Again, probably should just go watch the stage version. Well, I would like to. Exists for a dang reason. But mostly pro. Mostly pro. Very, very pro. The farce is so fucking good. The the random inspector who comes in and just stands there. You called. I am Charles Bovin, private investigator. Good. There is something I want you to find out for me. At your service. Be careful, monsieur. I'm always careful. That stool is broken. It is? <laughs> it's so Blake Edwards. It is. It's a very slapstick, but in a fun way. In a fun way. And I, I think to his credit, one of the greatest things about this movie and with that restraint is that he throws all that slapstick in, but not at the expense of the deeper themes that are running through this show. Sure. sure. That's probably the biggest thing. Yeah. He doesn't undercut the sort of kind of serious conversations that come up from all of this different stuff. Sure. He just adds on to it to get you to laugh, to realize, well, this is deep, but it is also absurd and kind of funny. Mm-hmm. This is this is a truly bizarre situation. And it can be both. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's talk about our cast. And we're going to talk about a woman who should be protected at all costs. Yes. She is the epitome of a living treasure. Mm-hmm. We have talked about her in both The Sound of Music and Thoroughly Modern Millie. Mm-hmm. It's Julie Andrews playing Victoria and Victor. She's a treasure. It's Mary fucking Poppins. It's Maria. It's, yes, the hills are alive with the sound of Julie Andrews. Like, she's she's amazing. And she's so good in this. She's so good. And she's so different from what I've seen her in before because she's very body and just like, not so much brash, but just like, She's not the sweet, innocent lady. Yeah, even in Millie, which gets a little racy. Sure. She's very naive. She's still naive and innocent. Yeah, exactly. 
in this <laughs> that she ain't naive. No. And I love the fact that they played into the fact that she is a little older. Sure. That character's a little older and that she's starving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like very literally. So she's sort of at the point where if I could just get a job, any job singing, that would be fine by me. She's like, I know I'm too good to not get paid to sing. Take my advice and stick to Carmen. I am a coloratura, Monsieur Labise, not a mezzo. Well, whatever you are, Andre Cassel should never have sent you over here. He didn't. You told me he was your agent. I lied. Thank you. And in spite of what you think, Monsieur Lobis, there are some professions where practice does make perfect. What in hell was that? Be flat. Like, she has that confidence, but it's also like, girl gotta eat. So she brings that little bit of toughness into mm-hmm. it. But in a way that's still very Julie Andrews. I think that's that's the magical part of it. It's like you never lose that that sort of fact of she feels like royalty when she's on screen. Mm-hmm. But she's also willing to literally throw a fucking punch. Yep. And that's rad. This was part of a one-two punch where her squeaky clean image mm-hmm. got thrown into a lot of controversy. I love it. I love it. Because the year before, in Edward's SOB, she appeared topless. Mm. And that caused a whole lot of talk. Oh, of course it did. People still talk about that mm-hmm. from like who saw that movie in its time and were like, oh my God, Mary Poppins. We saw Mary Poppins boobs. Like, <laughs> sure, they were fabulous. I'm sure they were too. And then, of course, is doing this entire drag performance, this mm-hmm. whole movie. Yeah, and she's just carrying herself in a way that we've never seen before. It was a shock to a lot of people, but I think it was just a huge stretch for her. Which is great. I love it. I'm here for it. To prepare for the role, she did watch the original 1933 film. She also took boxing lessons, so she would look convincing when she was throwing punches. Oh, I like that. And she talked about she she felt a little nervous about this movie. Quote, there were so many things to be worked out. As someone who likes to be in control, I felt wobbly. There was something else, too. When you get older, you kind of get on to yourself. You know the tricks you play to get by, and you like them less and less if you care about your work. I was trying hard to get away from them, and sometimes was falling back, unquote. Mm. Ooh, I love how self-aware that is, just as a, as a, as a performer. And I, I don't know if that was in the context of, that's why I really wanted to do this, mm-hmm. because I was... I was tired of going back to the same old bag of tricks that I, I had been accustomed to. And sure. I really wanted to, to stretch that and use those skills. Well, I mean, she, she was Mary Poppins. She was in Camelot. She was Eliza Doolittle <laughs> on Broadway. She originated that role. She should have been Eliza Doolittle in the movie. Yes, but they decided they wanted Audrey Hepburn. But hey, guess what? Mary Poppins got the Oscar that year. Fuck off. <laughs> she, got her, she got her revenge. <laughs> So yeah, like if you look at her career, like her most well-known things are of a very similar tone and style. So yeah, it totally makes sense for her to be like, I could do that character without even thinking. This requires a whole new gear that I didn't know I had. Yeah. And so that I think that's probably what she means by like not relying on old tricks is like, I have to create new tricks in order to be able to do this. Which I love. I love hearing about some of those actory mechanic things. And then the fact that she was loved this role so much that, you know, 13 years later, mm-hmm. she'd be like, absolutely, I'll play it on Broadway. Hells yeah, Broadway. Hello. However, there was one other thing that did help. That was her four octave vocal range. Yes. If you did not know that, she is truly gifted. <laughs> The only way she could perform a number like La Jazz Hot was because she could sing low male tenor notes all the way through high soprano with barely noticeable transitions in her voice. Mm-hmm. So that made this, from a music standpoint, a lock for her. <laughs> oh, for, yes. And makes it also a very hard role to cast. <laughs> in order to play 
Victor and Victoria, you have to be as gifted as Julie Andrews, basically. You've got to have that range. Or you've got to have a musical director that can do a lot of great arrangements. Good luck! <laughs> Next, we have Robert Preston playing Carol Toddy Todd. He was a leading man in the 40s and 50s. That's most of what his stuff was before. You'd probably know him best from his biggest breakout role as the music man. Hmm. Then, How the West Was Won, Junior Bonner, Mame, Semi, Tough, and SOB. And after this, he was in The Last Starfighter. Okay. What do we think of Robert Preston in this movie? He's charming. Oh, so charming. The second he shows up, you understand why people love him as a performer. And then you also understand why he's going to be a great friend for the Julie Andrews character. Like, you get it. Like, you're like, this just makes sense. They're fabulous people. It's, it's that, it's that down to earthness. Mm-hmm. Like, gay, part of the scene. It's also realistic. <laughs> yeah, like, he, he knows his place in this world. He's older, so that, that makes a lot of difference, too. True. And I also like that dynamic, that he's older and he's, I, w- I don't want to say more mature, but he's a little more worldly. And he has no delusions about where his place is. No. And what living his life means. None. And he doesn't pretend to. It's just, I put on a show and I receive the love. That's the contract that I've signed, essentially. And now all of a sudden, we have a golden opportunity to take a magical ride through a pile of money. Pretty much. And eventually we might get figured out, but it's going to be fun while we do it. Yeah, let's have a good time. Like, I think what's interesting is this whole movie, Victoria is worried they're going to get found out. Toddy doesn't give a shit. For him, it's a matter of when are we going to be found out? (laughs) We're going to ride the, we're going to milk this as long as we can, and then we're just going to hit the bricks like we're gone. Sure. You know, then over time, they come to have this really, really close relationship, yeah. and he's willing to go to the floor for her. Yeah, whatever you need. It's one of those things where he's brilliant, one, because he's gay, and he's outspokenly gay in the movie. Mm-hmm. But also, what really makes him the best character is the conflict between his sense of loyalty and his sense for the grift. Sure. And that charm. And like at the end of the day... All of it winds up coming together where you just have this really great character. Sure. He's that's fabulous. that's all you care about. <laughs> and again, I think while his purpose in the film is to service Victoria's journey, mm-hmm. he is still, I feel like he is written with a lot of care and nuance. So I feel like it's really loving. I feel like everybody got a touch of that in this movie. A little bit. I mean, it's it's a it's a fucking sex farce. Like, sure, it's not gonna be perfect, but everybody got a got a hint of like more endearing and thoughtful moments. Mm-hmm. There's nothing. Um, he's not made to be a joke or tragically sad. He's not. He's not. He's not tragic. No, nostalgic. Little nostalgic. wistful time from time to time. Sure, but he's not. You know, a tragic tragic gay. He's just believable. He's he's a person. Yeah. He's a real person. I'm going to be real honest. For queer characters, that's most of what people want. It's just like, can they just be a person? Oh, absolutely. It's it's the being incidentally gay as opposed to your entire character is about being gay. It depends on what story you're telling. But no, of course. But like, ultimately, I. Yeah. Yeah. We want the visibility. And it's like, that's not their entire personality. So tell them, tell more than one story. Yep. Well, he was an incredibly talented stage performer in his time as well. He also completed the final number in a single take. Oh, man. Way to go. Which explains why he is so exhausted and sweating (laughs) profusely. Yes. Because he did that all in one fucking take. That last scene is the sloppiest, most magical thing ever. (laughs) But in the best way. Halfway through, he's like, well, this is a disaster, so now let's just go with it. Absolutely. <laughs> Who could have been better? Peter Sellers. I understand. The movie had originally been planned in 1978. Edwards had worked with Sellers all throughout their careers, mm-hmm. and this was intended for him. 
But while Edwards and, and Julie Andrews working on SOB, Sellers passed away in 1980. Mm-hmm. So that was not possible. Yeah. It wouldn't have worked. He would have hammed it up because that's what Peter Sellers did. Yeah. It would have been that stereotypical, you know, limp wrist, lispy neck. I, f- I feel like that's what he would bring to it. Of course he would. It would, it would have felt gross. And Preston didn't do that. I will say, Peter Sellers would have been capable of doing what Robert Preston did in this movie. Absolutely, but I don't think that would have been his first instinct. And I don't know. I don't think he would have brought the nuance that Preston did. I mean, let's be clear. We're on record that Peter Sellers is a garbage human. Yes, he's a garbage human. Was not a good dude. But also, like, he's like the evil Robin Williams. <laughs> Has that same penchant for just, like, improving to to the fullest extent but he does it for nefarious reasons mm-hmm. whereas robin always tried to like you know find something deeper in the character all right let's talk about a real dream boat and he's very dreamy in this movie mm-hmm. it's james garner as king marchand mm. before this james garner did a lot of bit parts in television before landing the role that broke him maverick for television then The Great Escape, The Thrill of It All, The Americanization of Emily, Grand Prix, Hour of the Gun, Support Your Local Sheriff, Marlowe, Support Your Local Gunfighter, and The Rockford Files on television. After this, they did a new series called Brett Maverick, Sunset, The Distinguished Gentleman, Fire in the Sky. He appeared in Maverick in 1994, did a ton of Rockford Files TV specials, like mm-hmm. 30? It was ridiculous. He was the voice of God in God, the Devil, and Bob. Space Cowboys, Atlantis, The Lost Empire, Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood, The Notebook, and was on Eight Simple Rules for Television. What do we think of James Garner in this movie? He's so dreamy. Oh my god. I mean, he is my preferred cowboy, um, as, opposed, <laughs> as opposed to John Wayne, I'm James Garner, lady. Absolutely. Fuck John Wayne. Support your local sheriff. Just an adorable movie with him in it. I just There are just bits about that movie that I'm just like... This is applicable to today. It's just like, I'm going to get in your mind. The fact that he's the charming comic relief in The Great Escape of all movies. Which I still have never seen. It's on the list. But he is magical. He's charming because he's just charming. That's the lane that he plays and He's not doing anything fantastical. Other than he is so conflicted. Yeah, I do like his conflicted face. It's like, I, this this performer, this Victor, is so magnetic. I don't understand my feelings. Um, so yeah, it's it's fun. You were saying, Mr. Marshall? Well, I I just find it hard to believe that you're a man. Because you found me attractive as a woman. Yes, as a matter of fact. It happens frequently. Not to me just proves the old adage there's a first time for everything i don't think so but you're not a hundred percent sure practically ah but to a man like you someone who believes he could never under any circumstances find another man attractive the margin between practically and for sure must be as wide as the grand canyon if you were a man i'd knock your block off and prove that you're a man that's the woman's argument Your problem, Mr. Marchand, is that you're preoccupied with stereotypes. I think it's as simple as you're one kind of man, I'm another. And what kind are you? One that doesn't have to prove it to myself or anyone. Excuse me. That's that's the thing that I was like, I was not ready for James Garner to have weird gay feelings. (laughs) And that's the charming part of it is like, because he's he's such a great comedic actor, mm-hmm. even though he was always more of a leading man type. But he brings all that same charm. And then at the same time, you see it flashing all over his face and his eyes of like, no, this can't be right. I can't be having these feelings mm-hmm. <laughs> like some this is no. And just all of that watching it. And it was like he really went for it. He really went for that in that character. And I appreciate that. Because a lot of leaning men wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. Who could have been better? While Edwards insisted James Garner was his only choice ever, there were rumors that Tom Selleck was up for the role. Okay, I could see that. 
I think he would have been excellent. Tom Selleck's a fabulous actor. People have been giving him a lot of shit for like some dumb 80 movies and the fact that he's been primarily on TV for the last, you know, 15 years. But, you know, there's been a lot of great TV on. So he's doing great. But James Garner is so much dreamier, even with the mustache. Oh, I, I mean, I'm going with James Garner. Especially with that mustache. My goodness. And finally, for our main cast, we must talk about Leslie Ann Warren playing Norma Cassidy. Before this, she was Cinderella in the 1965 Rodgers and Hammerstein TV version, The Happiest Millionaire, the one and only genuine original family band, Mission Impossible on television, and Harry and Walter go to New York. After this, she played Miss Scarlet in Clue. She was in the music video for Janie's Got a Gun, Pure Country, The Limey, Teaching Mrs. Tingle, Secretary, Peep World, Desperate Housewives, and Jobs. And she did tons of stage work and smaller roles, too. Those are just sort of the biggest things. Okay, but you're forgetting my favorite credit of hers. Uh Uh-oh. Like, come on, David. She was the lead in my favorite episode of Fairy Tale Theater. (laughs) Shelley Duvall's Fairy Tale Theater. She was the lead in the 12 Dancing Princesses story, which is my favorite. Well, there you go. She's fabulous. I love her. Holy shit. I don't like some of the things that come out of her mouth because they're not great. But she's that character. But she's that character. And she's fabulous at being that character. I adore her. She completely understood her character from moment one. Like everybody else, you know, they they do great performances, but you can tell there was there was some easing into it and sort of sussing out how am I gonna do this? What am I gonna do? Leslie and Warren was like, I know who this bitch is right now mm-hmm. and just threw it out and is stealing every goddamn scene she's in. Yeah. The way she flirts with Toddy oh. is the funniest fucking thing. It's fabulous. And then her revelation of Victoria. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's she's magnificent. Originally, the role of Norma had no singing. Mm hmm. It was a straight acting performance. And Leslie Ann Warren came in fully prepared. She bleached her hair. Okay. She developed the accent on her own. Blake Edwards didn't ask for any of it. Mm -hmm. She just prepped all of this. When she came on set and started doing that, Edwards took her aside and said, hey, do you still sing and dance? Because I'll put a number in for you. Love it. And she said yes. And so the chorus line song was written especially for her to perform. I love that. Because of just how immensely like into the character she got. And when the musical was staged on Broadway, she was offered the role of Norma. But unfortunately, she had other commitments. She was not able to take it on. Okay. So that's sad. But wowzers. She is she is the scene stealer. This whole movie. She she really is. And not in a bad way, but just like she's, you know, the cherry on top of the uh, farce Sunday. Oh, very good. Now let's talk about a, a few Arpons. Okay. We have Alex Karras playing Squash Bernstein, King's bodyguard. Okay. He was a defensive tackle for the Detroit Lions from 1958 to 1971. Okay. Then he became a celebrity panelist on Match Game, was in a handful of movies. He also was in Fairy Tale Theater. Oh, which one? He was Papa Bear in Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Uh, okay, that makes sense. And he also had a long run on Webster. He was the the adopted dad on Webster. Okay. Along with his real life wife, which was very fun. Hmm. We have John Reese Davies playing Andre Cassell. Of course, he is Slaw from Raiders of the Lost Ark, Gimli from Lord of the Rings, and we would also know him because he played General Pushkin in The Living Daylights. We have Jeffrey Edwards, Blake Edwards' son. He is the divine admirer at the rehearsal. He has directed a handful of things, mostly music videos for New Edition. Okay. And finally, Patty Stone playing the rehearsal choreographer when they are rehearsing Victor's first number. He is the actual choreographer for the movie. Okay. And he worked with the Patty Stone dancers throughout the 60s in England. So he was a very English choreographer. That's something we're typically used to here. Now let's talk about awards, but we're going to do things a little differently here for reasons we'll get into a little bit further down the road. We're only 
going to do the nominations, not the actual winners. Mm. It was nominated for seven Academy Awards. Okay. Best Art Set Decoration. Okay. $15 million on sets. You better get a fucking nod. Mm-hmm. Best Costume Design. Okay. Victor's costumes as Victoria are. Oof. Oh, that's an expert. Best Original Song Score and Adaptation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fair. Best Supporting Actress, Leslie Ann Warren. Mm, okay. Best Supporting Actor, Robert Preston. Okay. Best Actress, Julie Andrews. Mm-hmm. And Best Adapted Screenplay. Oh, very interesting. I like it. Lots of good nods there. Lots of acting nods, which, fair. They're all very good. The cast really, really sells this movie. Wow. Not in a bad way. They've got a really good script. It's just that they really make it work. <laughs> I love it. And that moves us to trivia. Trivia. Right before Crazy World, Victoria makes a deal with King. They will not keep secrets or hold grudges. They won't plan past tomorrow, and they will take it one day at a time. Per Julie Andrews, those were the vows that she and Blake Edwards made to each other when they married in 1969, and she attributed their long marriage to those specific promises. Aw, that's so cute. I know. Well, and, and this is a good moment to also point out that they were married until his death, which was only not, it wasn't too long ago. No. No. That's amazing. precious. The bumbling detective Bovan was based on Inspector Clouseau from Edward's Pink Panther franchise. Of, of course he was. The fucking name. Of course. It makes me think of the French Dispatch mm-hmm. on We Sir Blase. The costume worn in The Shady Dame from Seville is the same for both Julie Andrews and Robert Preston. Oh. The costume was made specifically to fit Preston and then using a lot of hooks and eyes drawn in for Julie Andrews to perform it. Okay. To disguise their difference in height, they added a number of ruffles and the costume is now in a private collection having all of the rips and tears in it that Preston put in while doing the final dance. I love that. That's amazing. <laughs> also, if it appears that Preston is wearing one dancing shoe with a heel and one flat while performing, that's because as part of the destruction of the costume, the heel broke off his right shoe. <laughs> that's adorable. He pulled in a china shop, the whole fucking thing. It's amazing. But it's, it's so endearing. Oh, it's so good. During the scene where Victoria's dress has shrunk, there is a poster for Les Trompettes sont en bois, The Trumpets Are Wood, that is styled very similarly to the poster for The Music Man. To film the cockroaches, they were frozen into being immobile. This is something uh-huh. you can do with insects. You can freeze them. They don't die. They're basically just sort of literally frozen in place. Then they took a hairdryer and heated them up to wake them up. And they hoped they would jump in the right direction. That feels so gross. You know? But having, having done that with ants to get them into the ant farm, I understand. Working, working with insects. The fear, though, was very real. Julie Andrews was actually very, very afraid of cockroaches. Mm-hmm. And this is one of three movies in the year 1982 featuring stories that include gender-swapped performances, mm-hmm. which also includes Tootsie. And the world according to Garp. Keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Let's get on to ratings. Okay. For every film, we have a specialized rating system for this movie. Ooh. Huh. Don't know. It feels like there were some specific things, but I don't remember them now. I agreed. I, I'm not. I'm at a loss. Oh, God. Oh, bother. Oh, bother. Oh, you know what? The pairs of shoes that the guy's leaving out to get shined in the hotel room. Okay. Shoes. Pairs of shoes. Oh my god, that that moment where he's just like, I'm just picking up my shoes. What the hell is going across the hall? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and poor poor squash just frozen standing outside the hotel room while King's like, get back over here. I'll go first. This is a really solid good movie. It's not perfect, and some of it's just that it's aged and dated, but the story itself is so solid that all you need is just some refreshment of it. Mm-hmm. And then you add on the amazing performances just because of some of the messiness and things and some of the flatness at times. I'm going to go with a four. 
Mm-hmm. It's a really good movie. It's just not, you know, in that upper, upper echelon for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with a four. It's so enjoyable to watch. There's just those few things that I want to see done better. Mm-hmm. And while, it, while we're, we're considering it a musical, it is missing some of those character songs. So it'll be interesting to see the actual stage musical to see like what they added in to because those are the types of things that are missing from this movie. But it it's still amazing. And so, yeah, four. It's a four for me. Yet another movie that needs to just be remade. I'm, I'm OK with that. And so now we we head into our final movie of this musical series. We have seen so many great movies. Mm-hmm. What are we watching next week? Oh, to finish out our musicals for this round of musicals because we're gonna have to do this again there's so many there are so many and we decided to go with one that's a little more recent um yeah so we're gonna watch rock of ages what are we doing we're gonna watch tom cruise sing because we it's a tom cruise movie we have to talk about him again oh god damn it yeah that that fucking xenu bastard did it again damn it how much Tom Cruise? It's the only reason, right? It's the only reason. It's because Tom's in it. Absolutely. If Tom wasn't in it, I'd probably never touch it. Oh, God. All right. Well, let's brace ourselves. So until next time, have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.